And we're continuing in our study of this winter season through the Gospel of John. We're beginning in verse 12 today, and the title of our message here this morning is When Jesus Cleans House. A few years ago, there was a unique story reported about a Massachusetts man, a fellow named Nate Roman. He came home from work one afternoon to discover that somebody had broken into his house. But this was no routine burglary because nothing was missing. Instead, the intruder had cleaned Roman's house top to bottom, spick and span. The rugs were vacuumed. The beds were made. The bathrooms were scrubbed. And as you see here on the headline article, even the toilet paper was arranged in an origami rose. <laughs> the man wasn't sure what to do, so he called the police anyway. But the authorities said that the evidence of the break-in had, well, been swept away. It was what you might call a clean crime scene. Now, unusual story, but if your house looks anything like mine does right now, you want to get a hold of uh, this particular intruder. One of the wonderful surprises about committing your life to Christ is discovering His cleansing power. Uh, that when you invite Christ into your life, He comes in and He cleans things up and He changes things around. He reorders your priorities and purifies your mind. And I don't think there's ever an occasion where uh, Jesus left a situation or a person worse off than when He found them. And so He stands at the door of your heart and He knocks. And when you invite Him in, He comes in, as it were, with broom and mop to clean up. I love what David Jeremiah wrote in one of his books. He said, quote, Jesus is holy, pure, and sinless. And as you grow in Him, He makes you increasingly like Himself. As you progress in your Christian journey, you develop an instinctive yearning for righteousness and the need for your inner life to reflect Christ's purity. Put simply, we all need someone who can disinfect our hearts, clean up our habits, vacuum our values, sweep the dirt out of our minds, launder our motives, spruce up our attitudes, and tidy up our testimonies. Perhaps, maybe today, you stand in need of a spiritual house cleaning. Well, in John chapter 2, we're going to read about one of the first acts of Jesus' public ministry, and that is where he purifies the temple in Jerusalem. And in this passage, not only do we see Jesus' zeal and his righteous indignation against a crooked religious system, but there's also in this passage a lot of personal application to our own lives about getting the junk out. So as you're taking notes today, I want you to notice Number one, the profaning of the temple. Verse 12 is where we will begin. The profaning of the temple. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14 says that in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. So when Jesus arrives there in Jerusalem, 
He goes to the temple and he sees that his father's house has been turned into a cross between a circus sideshow and a flea market. Kent Hughes, a great Bible commentator, he imagined the flurry of activity that took place on the day that Jesus arrived at the temple. He said, quote, The noise in the court of the Gentiles was terrific. Merchants shouted from their stalls to the customers and noisily haggling pushy pilgrims jostled one another for position. The incredible din was heightened by the constant bawling of livestock. The aroma of animals accentuated by the enclosure made it like a country fair and a stock exchange rolled all into one. <laughs> what an image. Now, the Bible says in our text that it was the time of Passover. And you'll remember that Passover was one of the great Jewish feasts on their calendar every year. It commemorated the deliverance of God all the way back in the book of Exodus chapter 12 where God brought His people out of Egyptian slavery and He did that through the plagues upon Egypt, most especially the last plague where God asked that the blood of a lamb be shed and spread across the posts of the doors and those whom had the blood applied, the death angel would pass over. A picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. Now, Passover was one of those three feasts that was required for every able-bodied male to attend. That was also Pentecost and Tabernacles as well. Now, the first century Jewish historian Josephus records that during his time that about 256,000 lambs were sacrificed on a normal Passover weekend and that Jerusalem swelled with about 2.5 million people. So you can imagine the hustle and bustle of this time. Now, the influx of travelers meant big business for some. There were those religious hucksters who saw this as an opportunity to make a quick buck. The Jewish law required that every family bring their own sacrificial lamb for Passover. And since people were traveling from all over the world to come to Jerusalem, it was impractical for them to bring an animal with them. And so what the merchants did is they set up a convenient one-stop shop where they supplied the people with their sacrifices, of course, at an excessive price. And on top of that, the Bible says there were the money changers. Now, who were these folks? Well, in order to have your animal sacrificed at the temple, you had to pay a temple tax. And the temple tax used a different form of currency. If you came with your Roman coins, well, that wouldn't be accepted in the temple. So they had to exchange their Roman coins for temple coins. And, of course, there was a transaction fee on top of that. And so here are the greedy extortioners. They're running this bizarre-like market, and they are taking advantage of the people and their desire to worship God. So you can imagine, as Jesus rolls up on the scene here, His blood is boiling. The entrepreneurs of the temple had made a franchise out of faith. These religious hucksters had transformed the house of prayer into a place of profit. And instead of praying for the people, they were praying on the people, you might say. Now today, of course, we don't have a temple. We don't have to go, praise God, and offer a lamb. But 
today, as the church, we do have a different temple. We have our bodies. If we've been saved, if, if we've been born again, the Bible says that the new temple becomes ourselves. Our Passover land, Jesus Christ, was offered for our sins. And when we're saved and born again, the Holy Spirit takes up abode in our life. And you see, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people. But now in the New Testament, God has a people for His temple. So the difference is drastic. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul makes this clear to us, this important transition. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? This is why Christians can't do whatever they please, because you don't belong to you. You belong to God. You were bought with a price, he says in verse 20. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the application today is very clear for us. Just as the Jews in this time had profaned the temple of God, so too, if we allow sin to profane our temple, then it's time for a house cleaning. And I speak of the temple of our bodies. So I ask you the question today, how is your temple looking? If Jesus were to do an assessment of your life, are you bringing glory and honor to Him? Or have you allowed unrighteous habits and pet sins and tolerated things uh, to sully your temple? What about your eyes? Are your eyes viewing images and videos that are polluting your soul? How about your feet? Are your feet carrying you to places that a Christian has no business going? How about your mouth? Is your mouth speaking truth? Uh, uh, are you putting things into your body like alcohol and nicotine and addictive substances that are killing the spiritual desire within you? What about your hands? Are you using your hands to build the kingdom of God? Are you using your hands to serve your fellow brother or sister in Christ? Are your hands being folded in prayer? Are your hands turning the pages of the Word of God every day? Friend, what does your temple look like this morning? Let me ask you a question. Are the things that you are living for today worth Jesus dying for? A few years ago, <laughs> my daddy, he had a shop on Brevard Road. And uh, he had a big dumpster in the back of his parking lot there. And so whenever we had uh, enough trash to take, I'd take the trash and I'd put it in the trunk of my car and I'd drive it over to my dad's and I'd, Uses dumpster. Well, Caitlin and I hadn't been married but just a couple of years. And uh, I had a big haul of trash, and I, I put it in the trunk of my car. And my plan was that later on in the day, I was going to take it to my dad's shop. Well, I forgot. I got busy in my life, and, you know, one thing led to another. And, and, and I forgot that there was trash riding around in the trunk of my car. And it was in the summer, by the way. I don't think I told you that, but... You know, when you park a car in the sun and it gets hot, uh, well, that, that smell just gets even worse. Well, I rode around for two or three days with this trash in the back of my trunk, and I kept thinking, you know, i got to go and i got to take this by Dad's. But things just kept interrupting me, and I never could get over there. And you know what? After about four or five days, I didn't even notice the smell anymore. Here I was riding around with trash piled in the back of my trunk, stinking to high heaven. 
I fit, real, fit in real good with some of the candler folk <laughs> at the Inca Red Light. But you know what? Here I was driving around with trash in the back of my car. Caitlin and I were going on a date. Yeah. Later on that week, toward the end of the week, we arranged some babysitting, and we were looking forward to a night out together. And we got in the car, and she hadn't been in that car for five seconds, and it failed the sniff test. She curled up her little nose. She said, what is that smell? Bing, and it dawned on me, oh, my gosh, I still have trash in the back of my trunk. So part of our romantic date was we had to swing by Dad's dumpster and drop off the trash before our night out on the town. A, a, a dream scene for every woman, right? But I tell you that story this morning because I want to ask you this question. Hey, are you carrying around some trash in your life? Uh, what have you got stored in the trunk that's been garbaging up in your life that you've just tolerated or you've made space for or, or, or you've just gotten so used to carrying it around anymore I don't know what it might be, but maybe you're carrying around the problem of sin, a problem of addiction in your life. Maybe you're carrying around the hurt of a painful past in your life. Maybe there's a grudge that you've held against somebody in a church years ago. You got your feelings hurt. Or there's a grudge between you and your spouse or a friend. Or, or maybe you're, you're, you're carrying around some kind of sin that you've justified in your mind that it's okay for you to hold on to. And I'm asking you today, are you ready to open it up and let Jesus clean it out? We see number one, the profaning of the temple. I know this isn't popular and I know that the message like this may not be preached in many churches today. But you know what? I think we need to hear it today. Stick with me. I'm not beating you up. There will be some grace toward the end of this. Number one, I, thought, I hope that you saw the profaning of the temple. Then number two, I want you to see the purging of the temple. The purging of the temple. Notice what the Bible says beginning again in verse 15. The text tells us that, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now as you read that passage, Hey, so much for Jesus making mild. <laughs> Some people don't like to think of Jesus this way, but I need to remind you that he is not an effeminate pansy who's just going to wink at sin and tolerate the evil things in our lives. Hey, the same hands that reached out and healed the sick and ministered to the poor are the same hands that grasped that furniture and flung it down to the steps of the temple. You see, to the humble, Jesus is gentle as a lamb, and to the hypocrites, he was fierce as a lion. And Jesus is just as much a Savior as He is a judge. Amen? Now this passage shows us several ways of what happens when Christ begins to purify or purge our lives. This is really, as we apply this this morning, a good segue into learning about God's discipline in our lives. He was going to His own people just as God will go to his own people. Jesus didn't do this in a pagan temple. He did this in the Jewish temple, his own people. 
God still disciplines you and I today. What does that look like? Well, I think this passage shows us. First attribute of God's discipline, it is confirming. It's confirming. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been taken to the divine woodshed before? It's not fun. And sometimes Jesus has to crack the whip in our lives. And if you've been there, you ought to be grateful. You ought to be grateful for the Lord's discipline in your life because it's a sign that you belong to Him. I didn't write that. The writer in Hebrews did. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8. Look at what the Bible says here. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Wow. I can take you to the place where I got one of the worst thrashings that my daddy ever gave me in my life. In fact, it's just a few miles down the road in the sanctuary of Pole Creek Baptist Church. You see, contrary to what you might think of your preacher, he was not always a well-behaved young man. I didn't come out of the womb reading the Bible. Okay? My wife can point out all the ways in which I fall short. See her after the service if you need confirmation of that. I, I can remember one of the worst spankings that I ever got happened on a Sunday morning sitting in the pew beside Dad because I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't really uh, focused in on what the preacher was saying, even though after the service I probably could have told my dad every word that the preacher said. But I was being a distraction to him, and he'd had enough. And he, whipped, he gave me a warning, and that was all you got, one morning. And then he whipped me up, and he jerked me out of that pew. And I can remember holding on to the edge of that pew as he's got me by the waist. No, Daddy! No, Daddy! No, Daddy! I knew what was coming. He drugged, he drugged me to the bathroom, and friend, he wore me out. You know why? Because I deserved it. I don't hate my daddy for that. I love my daddy for that because he was there, and he loved me enough to provide correction on my backside. A little bit of correction to the seed of understanding. Amen? And what the Bible is saying here is that a parent who won't discipline their child, is lazy and doesn't love them. That's what Hebrews 12 is getting at. And so God loves His children so much that He will not allow us to be successful in our sin. He'll let us run a little bit. He'll let us fall on our face. He may even let us succeed a little bit, but along the way, if you're truly His, He's going to snatch you up, take you to the woodshed, and apply some discipline so that you might return back to Him. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I am glad for your chastisement. You see, friend, if you don't experience the chastening of the Lord in your life, then guess what? Do a heart check. You may not be in the family. That's what Hebrews is saying to us. But I'm thankful for a God who cares enough to correct me when I step off the straight and narrow. 
I'm thankful for a God who won't just let me have my own way and do my own thing. If I was left to myself, I'd end up flat on my face. I'd end up in a ditch. I'd end up in a ruin of a life. But I'm thankful that God would get me back on track. And my God will always apply mercy and grace after the chastisement is done. Oh, God will wrap you up in loving arms and remind you of His mercy and His grace in your life. He's a dad. He'll discipline you with one hand and then wrap you up in the other and say, I love you. Let's do better next time. God's discipline is confirming. It proves that I belong to Him. Secondly, God's discipline is consuming. It's consuming. Notice the little word in verse 16. It just sticks out to me. All those who sold the pigeons, take away these things. And then in... the previous verse, making a whip out of cords, he drove them, watch this, all out of the temple. That little word all is important, right? It means Jesus didn't leave anything left. Notice that Jesus didn't work out a compromise with the money changers, did he? Hey guys, um, if you make sure and tithe off of the profits that you make, it's okay, you can keep doing what you're doing just uh, make sure you tithe off that he didn't go to the people selling the animals and say hey why don't we skim a little bit of that off the top and uh, give it to Judas over there and that'll help fund our ministry he didn't make a compromise with any of these hucksters did he no Jesus the Bible says he cleaned out the entire operation I love what Adrian Rogers said years ago he said quote the sin that we tolerate today will dominate tomorrow you see, this was an all-or-nothing proposition. It was Jesus' way or the highway. And he sent them running with their tails between their legs like a bunch of scalded dogs. Reminds me of the story that I heard about a man who continually went to the midweek prayer meeting. And uh, he would always start off confessing his sin. Now, if you've ever been in a prayer meeting before, you know how this goes. But this man would always pray the same prayer every week. Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. Well, after several weeks, this little old lady who had no filter, you know who some of them folks are. They've been around the church long enough. They've lived long enough to speak their mind. There's no filter. This little old lady, she had heard enough of that, that praying. And as that man prayed once again, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. The little old lady, she interrupted him in the middle of that prayer. She said, Lord, don't just take the cobwebs out. Kill the spider. (laughs) Hey, don't settle for just cleaning the cobwebs out of your life. Go after the source of the clutter and the sin and the, the trash in your life. You see, we make compromises with sin. And we let it hang around. We don't really declare war on it. We don't really get serious about it. We listen to the preacher and we might get a little bit of sting of conviction and we come to the altar we might pray a little bit but we get up and we really haven't changed because we haven't been serious about repenting of that in our lives. And I'm telling you that if you want to do a thorough purging of the house you've got to let Jesus come in and throw it all out and don't hold on to anything so you can't return to your sin. God's discipline is consuming 
And it is confirming, but then also notice that it's costly. It's costly, isn't it? Now, this is a deduction that I make from the text, but Jesus' scourging was bad for business, wasn't it? The money changers lost coins. The folk who were making their extortion on the doves and the animals, I don't know how they regained that stuff once Jesus let it all go, but the point is they lost their business. Friend, I don't know what it will cost you to allow Jesus to clean your house, but I'm telling you, whatever the price it is, it is worth cutting your losses so that you might have the restored joy of your salvation back to you again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. You know what David said in Psalm 51 in verse 8? He said, Make me to hear the joy and gladness, watch this, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. David got into a sin, didn't he? He got into adultery with Bathsheba. And God had to take him to the woodshed, didn't he? Because the Bible tells us in in 2 Samuel that that child that was brought into the world, it was conceived through uh, that sin with Bathsheba, that child, God took that child. And this is the wreckage that David is writing from. You know, he said, God, restore to me the joy. God, you've broken my bones, but... I've got to have your presence in my life once again. Friend, listen to me. Sin is the most expensive toll that you can ever pay. Because you pay that toll when you get off the road of the straight and narrow, and you pay in repentance when you get back on that road again. You see, Jesus went in there and he started turning over tables. He caused a disruption. He wrecked people's plans. Some of you listen to me. I'm trying to help you this morning. Please don't take this the wrong way. This comes out of a heart of love. If you're under God's discipline, He'll disrupt the plans you've made in your life. If you're truly His and He's truly trying to get you back on track, He's going to turn over some tables in your plans. Maybe you need to think about this. Why are things not working out according to your plans in life? Why is it that trouble just keeps popping up Could it be that you are under God's discipline? And He's turning over one table after another in your life, trying to get you to wake up and say, Hey, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you clean out all that mess in your life. I know preachers who've got out of God's will before and almost renounced their calling. And God had to bring down the hammer on them. I know men who got out of God's will for their life and all of a sudden... The, the business just tanked. They quit tithing and the truck broke down. They quit tithing and things went wrong in their, in their life. Or a child got sick. Or things went sideways. And it was just one problem after another. You know what it was? It was God turning over tables in their life. Helping them to get that junk out. You don't think God is that kind of God? He says, I'm a jealous God, doesn't he? It's costly. And it's also continual. It's continual. This wasn't the last time that Jesus would do this. If you study your Bible, you will learn that Jesus had to go back to the temple at the end of his ministry and clean it again. In fact, it's in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 
through 17. There it is up on the screen. At the end of his ministry, after he has the triumphal entry, they wave him in on palm branches. He goes back up to the temple, and they set up shop again three years later, and Jesus has to run them out a second time. What does this say to you and I? This says to you and I that there's a continual process of cleaning the junk out in our lives, isn't it? We don't just come to the altar one time and, and get it out and, and move on. Because we continue living, don't we? We continue facing the world, the flesh, and the devil. So don't ever think that you're going to get to a point in your life where everything's going to be hunky-dory and it's a bed of roses and the Christian life's going to be easy because it's not. You're going to need continual cleansing from Jesus Christ. But I'm thankful for the bar of soap. 1 John 1, 9, I can always go and get clean. The Bible says that He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's a good point in the message when you say amen. We got this storm door in our house. It's full glass. I'm OCD. Have I told you that about me? Maybe you already figured it out. But there's certain things that just, I don't know, I just, it just irk me. I'm not normal. You have to be a little bit strange to be a preacher anyway. But uh, we got this glass door in my, in my house. And my kids love to walk up to that glass door in the morning. You know, when it's cold and the house is warm and it starts to fog up. What do they do? They put their handprints all over it. And they write words that they've learned in school. Well, I come home later on that day. And I notice fingerprints and dirt and cat prints and nastiness. And it just irks me. So I get out the Windex and I clean it. One day last year, <laughs> this is during the summer, uh, we were, it was a Saturday. We were going to do house cleaning. I got up that morning. I cleaned the storm door and I went out and mowed grass. And as I was taking a lap around the yard, I looked over. And there was Lydia with her face smashed up against that glass going, Bleh. <laughs> And I thought, I just cleaned that. And Caitlin says, welcome to my life every single day. And I think about that old storm door. The chore never ends, does it? But I'm thankful. Hey, look at what this verse says in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. The mercy of God, watch this, is new every morning because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, friend, you know why it says it's new every morning? Because God knew that we would need His mercy and His grace and His cleansing power every single day. I'm thankful that when I've made a mess of things and that when my life is full of junk and when my heart ain't right and I've got unconfessed sin in my life, oh, it's fresh grace every day and I can come to Him and He'll clean out the junk and set my feet on the right path again. You see, the hardest part about the Christian life is that it's every day. Amen? Every day, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the greatest enemy you have is staring you in the face as you look in the mirror. And you can't slack off. Because you know why? Satan don't take a day off. But greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. 
And His mercy is new every morning. So it's a continual thing that I need that cleansing in my life. Well, that's the profaning of the temple and the purging of the temple. And then I want you to see today, number three, the prophecy of the temple. Look at how this text ends. I'm almost done. Just bear with me. Verse 18, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they're all torqued out of frame. They say, Jesus, where do you get the authority to do this? And he pointed to himself and he said, hey guys, you don't realize this, but I'm the fulfillment of this temple, by the way. I am the presence of God walking around in a body on earth. He said, and I'm going to prove to you the authority that I have because this temple pointing to his own body is going to be destroyed, going to be killed on the cross, but three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. And by the way, if the Jews had been paying attention, they would have seen that Jesus' action was actually a fulfillment of Messianic prophecy because Brother John quotes in verse 17, Psalm 69 and verse 9, about where it says that the Messiah, when he would come, he would have a zeal for the house of the Lord. So Jesus wasn't referring to Herod's great temple. He was referring to his body that would be put to death on the cross and he would rise again. And the Jews were totally blind to this fact. In fact, if you fast forward to Jesus' trial and his crucifixion, they actually bring up this very charge to the people saying that Jesus claimed he was going to destroy the temple. But if you read between the lines, what is Jesus saying here? He's signaling that a great transition is taking place. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was the Shekinah glory that came down and manifested in the temple itself. But now that old way was passing and God in His glory had arrived to the person of Jesus Christ and the glory would ultimately be shown when the stone rolled away and He walked out in power and victory over death and that would show that He was Lord and God and everything He said about Himself was true. And if He can come back to life, what can He do in your life, friend? By the way, this is one of seven occasions in the gospel where Jesus predicted his resurrection. I've got a little chart that shows you this. It's probably too much for you to write down. But the claim was another proof of his divinity. It's not an amazing feat to predict your death. In fact, the statistics are pretty good. Ten out of ten die. None of us is going to make it out alive unless Jesus comes back. But it's quite another thing to say that you're going to rise from the dead. As C.S. Lewis pointed out in Mere Christianity, there's only three kinds of people that make that kind of a statement. A bad man, a bad man, or a God man. He was either deceptive, or he was deluded, or he was divine. But Jesus backed up this promise. He wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't a liar. He's Lord. And since Jesus is Lord and my body is His temple, then my goal ought to strive for holiness and purity in my life. 
You say, but pastor, you'll never attain it. That may be so. But if I fail, I want to be fail, striving for the high calling and the mark of Jesus Christ. Listen to what 1 John 3, 3 says. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Hey, friend, if the Lord were to return today, would you be ashamed at the shape of your life? Would your temple be dilapidated and shoddy and sullied? There's going to be some folks that when Jesus comes back, there's going to be some surprises. But you know what? I came today to tell you about God's grace as well. I want to finish up with a story today that illustrates the power of God to clean a life. Who would you say is the dirtiest person you could imagine? The beggar on the street? The drug dealer who sells poison to people? Is it the alcoholic or the prostitute or the greedy Wall Street billionaire who lives only for himself and making the next buck? I read a story this week about a man. Oh, his temple was dirty. His name was Jeff Myers. The story was on CBN. By his late 30s, listen to this, Jeff Meyer was king over an online pornography empire. He was his own Hugh Hefner. Jeff's website cataloged over 1.3 million porn images and thousands of hours of video. He had millions of subscribers, and in just two years, his business generated $2.5 million. Even though Jeff Meyer had all the trappings of success and notoriety in the adult entertainment industry, he was empty inside. Here's what he said in his testimony. He said, my soul was dead and I had no conscience. In order to distract from his depression, he turned to the drug ecstasy. But Jeff discovered that when his high wore off, he was in a worse situation than before. Because when his high wore off, he still had all the same problems that he had before. So one night he reached his breaking point and he decided to end it all. And in his testimony he said, Suicide was the only answer for me. My life was a wreck. My mind was perverted. So he said that he drank a whole bottle of vodka and downed several Vicodin. And normally, that would do the job. But it ain't over till God says it's over. And here's what happened. Amazingly, Jeff woke up the next day. And his first thought when he woke up is, Hey, I ought to be dead. There must be a God in heaven watching over me because I'm supposed to be dead. So in his despair, he cried out for God to help him. Lord, You've got to help me. God, you've got to show me the way. You've got to take this away from me. So he said he drove his car down to an intersection. He looked over and he saw a sign. Gospel tent meeting tonight. So he went to an old-fashioned tent revival on a campground. 
And it was that night that the preacher preached hot and heavy about God's forgiveness and the cross and Jesus giving people a second chance. And he said he couldn't get down the sawdust trail fast enough. He gave his life to Jesus, but he said there was a second miracle. Not only did he get saved, but he said he asked God to purify his mind. You see, his soul and his mind had been polluted with images of all the hours of pornographic material that he had created. But he said, over time, God cleaned out my mind. He said this in his testimony. He said, quote, Jesus took all those images away. He completely brainwashed me. He washed my brain thoroughly because my mind was so warped and perverted, he said. And today, he said, I have no recollection of what I produced. He started a new website called Godbeat.tv where he now uses his video making skills to create gospel centered content and videos about people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. What Satan meant for evil, hey, God meant for good. Here's what he said in his testimony. So powerful. He said, my life was a disaster. I was a drug-addicted, alcoholic, pornographer that ruined millions of lives. He's taken my life and turned it around. He loves me in spite of my massive mess. And every day, he's chipping off a little bit of the mess that I made. Christ has taken what Satan meant for bad and turned it into something amazing. And I am walking proof of God's amazing grace. You see, when Jesus cleans house, he does it thoroughly. And when Jesus cleans house, <laughs> you can't tell that there was any disaster there at all. I don't know what your temple's like today, what your life is looking like. I don't know if you've got some things that you're ashamed of or, or what God said to you through this message, but I want you to know that God loves you. He loves you enough that he's going to come in and he's going to change you. He loves you as you are, but he won't let you stay the way that you are. And I'm going to ask our musicians to come and we're going to prepare for invitation. Our altar is going to be open today for anybody that would come and say, you know what, Derek, I need, I need, a, I need a house cleaning today. You may be saved and born again. You may know that you're heaven bound, but you've been carrying around junk in your life. A bitter heart some unconfessed sin. Whatever it is, hey, come leave it at the altar.